Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series that we are doing in the book of Acts. We are hoping to get through all 28 chapters of the book of Acts. As always, I want to mention, uh, if anyone is just joining us, the notes and all of the previous recordings of this series are available uh, at our website, which is either the old address, new-life-ministries.org, or newlifechurch-md.org. Either one of those should direct you to the website, and you can download the notes and or any of the audio recordings for the sessions that you might be interested in. Okay, we're going to move right ahead tonight into chapter 17 of Acts. This is part 9 in our outline notes, and some of you may have slightly different page numbers depending on the version that you downloaded, but uh, the original notes, you should be on page 195. Uh, the numbers may be a little off if you have the newer uh, updated revision. In any event, we've come to Roman numeral 6, Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. And this starts off in Acts chapter 17. We are, of course, looking at what is commonly known as Paul's second missionary journey. He intended to begin this journey with Barnabas, who accompanied him on his first journey, but they parted ways, and Silas joined Paul. Subsequently, Timothy joined Paul, and Luke has also joined Paul for parts of this journey. And I'll begin by reading Acts 17, verses 1 to 9. And as I mentioned last time, when we read some of the letters that Paul later wrote, later wrote to these churches, like uh, the Corinthians, or Galatians, or the Thessalonians, you can understand the letters a lot better if you have this background from his original visits to these places, what happened there, the miracles, the persecutions, uh, the other troubles that they may have encountered there. A lot of those things are mentioned in the letters, as we will see tonight, with the Thessalonians. All right, here we go. Acts 17, from 1 to 9. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So, they've now come to Thessalonica, and as we have repeatedly seen, Paul and his company would always search out the Jews in that particular place, and if there was a synagogue, they would go first to the synagogue. 
We saw in chapter 16 when they came to Philippi, there was no mention of a synagogue, and we understand that to mean there were not enough Jews in Philippi to warrant opening a synagogue. But the case here is different. Obviously, there was a much larger Jewish population in Thessalonica, and so Paul goes first to the Jewish synagogue. The scriptures are very clear. Salvation was first for the Jews. God always gave the Jews the first opportunity to hear the gospel, and then, if they rejected it, he would then take the message to the Gentiles. But salvation, this is a very orderly thing that we see throughout the book of Acts. Salvation was always offered first to the Jews. When Jesus was here on earth, salvation was first for the house of Israel. And so following that pattern, Paul and others go into the Jewish synagogue, and of course they would meet there on the Sabbath day. So it says that on three successive Sabbath days, Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures in the synagogue. Just a little more background on the city of Thessalonica. We're still in the province of Macedonia. Remember, this whole journey began with Paul's vision of a man of Macedonia calling to him, come over and help us. So, They're still working in the region of Macedonia, and this is a very large city. Uh, Historians would indicate at the time of Paul's visit, probably had a population of about 200,000, which was large for those days. It was very strategically located on several important trade routes, and so it was an important commercial hub, A lot of business, a lot of activity centering around this place, so it would serve as an excellent base from which the gospel could spread out in many directions. So Paul has come here, I'm sure, understanding that, and also being directed there by the Holy Spirit. So, as his custom was, He goes into the synagogue, and the scriptures are very clear that for three consecutive Sabbaths, he met in the synagogue and reasoned with them from the scriptures. It's not absolutely clear if that signifies that Paul's visit in Thessalonica consisted really of only about three weeks. That's very possible and his visit may indeed have been cut short by the opposition and the persecution that arises there. Uh, I have often pointed this out in teaching, uh, particularly end times things, which are mentioned a lot in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Paul talks in almost every chapter about the rapture, the coming of the Lord, the Antichrist, the Great Tribulation, and all of those end times events. It's quite fascinating if he had only spent three weeks with these people and yet was able to write about such deep and profound truths concerning end times. It certainly uh, encourages me that we don't have to wait until somebody's been a Christian for 15 or 20 years to teach them about the rapture, the second coming, the great tribulation, the eternal kingdom of God. These were things that the apostles taught uh, from the very beginning with new believers and new churches. So, three consecutive Sabbaths, he reasoned, excuse me, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Over and over we've seen this. Paul remained focused on the main issue. That's Jesus Christ, 
Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ risen from the dead. So here he is, reasoning from the scriptures. The only scriptures they would have had, of course, are Old Testament scriptures. And following the pattern that Jesus used when he was here on earth, he used Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, the Old Testament scriptures to show himself in those scriptures. So Paul, using, actually the word reasoned could be translated arguing or disputing. He, he was really getting into it with them, showing from the scriptures that Jesus Christ fulfilled all of the Old Testament types, shadows, prophecies concerning Messiah. He used the Old Testament to do that, just as Jesus did. And I don't know if we're going to get this far tonight, but in Acts 17, later, Paul will visit Athens, where he is speaking to Gentiles, non-Jews, and will notice how his strategy is totally different. And he talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9. To the Jews I became a Jew. To the Greeks I became a Greek, so as to win them all to Christ. He didn't use Old Testament scriptures and a lot of Old Testament prophecy when he was speaking to Greeks. Rather, he quotes their poets and uses them to spring into his message. But here again, he's in the synagogue, he's with Jews, so he's using the language that they can understand, the Old Testament scriptures, to prove and to explain to them that Jesus Christ fulfilled these Old Testament scriptures, proving to them that Jesus is the Messiah. As I mentioned, this is exactly what Jesus did in using the Old Testament scriptures to prove, show, explain that He is the Messiah who fulfilled all of those scriptures. In Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24, Luke actually uses several of the same Greek words there to describe how Jesus used the Old Testament scriptures. In Luke 24, verses 25 to 27, this of course is the resurrected Christ. He's now been risen from the dead, and he's speaking to the two disciples that he met on the road to Emmaus, and starting in verse 25, he says to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ, or Messiah, have to suffer these things, and then enter his glory? Very important verse, verse 27. And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he explained, there's that word explained, same word that is used in Acts. He explained to them, it means to open thoroughly, or to expound. He's going to open to them what the scriptures were actually talking about. <clears throat> it says Moses, that means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Well, what's in those five books that talks about Christ? Oh, volumes. I'm sure Jesus would have referred to the Passover lamb, the tabernacle, Adam and Eve. So many uh, important types and shadows are found in Moses. And the prophets. No doubt he would have referred, referred to Isaiah and uh David and the Psalms, many of the messianic prophecies that are contained there. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Concerning himself. I've often shared that 
the Old Testament is something not to be discarded or overlooked. Quite the contrary. It's rich in types, shadows, prophecies that help us to understand the New Testament. And one way of explaining it, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. It's hidden in types and shadows. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The Holy Spirit is now opening our eyes and revealing to us all of the places in those Old Testament passages that were actually speaking about Jesus, the Messiah. So, he goes on in verse 44 and says to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. Notice that, written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So when you read the Old Testament, keep this in mind as the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to see Jesus in every part of the Old Testament. He's there. The law, the prophets, the Psalms. But verse 45 uses the same word that was used in Acts, and we're going to come back there now in a moment. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. You see, the mind has to be opened. There has to be a, a revealing, an illumination of the mind and the heart to understand these things. He told them, This is what is written, The Christ, the Messiah, will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. So, this is exactly what Paul's doing in the synagogue. He's taking the Old Testament scriptures. I'm sure he would have used the Passover. They all knew about the Passover. Perhaps he would have referred to the tabernacle of Moses. They all were familiar with that. And who knows what other portions of Old Testament scripture, certainly some prophecies from the Psalms, maybe Isaiah 53, and then he would use that to show this is the Messiah, and we've met the Messiah, he has come, he has died, he has been buried, and he's risen from the dead. That Messiah is the one I am proclaiming to you, Jesus the Christ. It says he was proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Very skillfully, I'm sure, Paul, who was very knowledgeable in the Old Testament, he was using these different scripture passages to show how perfectly, how exactly they were all fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Let me read Acts 17.3 again for you from the Amplified Version. It says, Paul was explaining them and quoting the passages, setting forth and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, the Messiah. One of the things that most of the Jews missed, even though it was clearly spelled out in the Old Testament, was that Messiah was not just coming as a conquering king and ruler to sit on the throne of David. He was coming first as the suffering servant. Notice it emphasizes in both what Jesus said in Luke 24, and what Paul is saying here in Acts 17, he was proving from the Scriptures that the Messiah first had to suffer, and then to rise from the dead. That's what makes me uh, believe that he certainly would have used Isaiah 53 to show the suffering servant, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, by his stripes we were healed, showing first 
the sufferings that Jesus went through as the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you, Paul said in the synagogue. And this starts to sound like a broken record, but here we go again. Some of the Jews believed, but the majority of them were jealous, they were envious, they became angry, and they stirred up trouble. And let's read verses 4 and 5 again to look at some important details here. Some of the Jews were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, and by that I understand most of the other Jews, because it says just some of them were persuaded and joined Paul, but the rest, the majority of the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. We've talked about this before. You see, the Jews, even though they were very jealous and they wanted to do harm to both Jesus and his apostles, they were also cowards. They didn't want to do it up front directly, so they would try to stir up other people, often Gentiles, to do their dirty work. That's the case here. They rounded up some bad characters, and these were real hoodlums. The, the Greek word means real rascals. These were real lewd, bad fellows, street people that were just hanging out in the street up to no good. They knew where to find them. They rounded up those bad characters from the marketplace, and formed a mob and started a riot in the city. As was often the case, the people that were rioting didn't even know why they were rioting. They were just happy to riot. These were troublemakers. They were always looking for a fight. They didn't even care what the issue was. So a mob forms and a riot breaks out. And this mob rushes to the house of one Jason because they knew that's where Paul and Silas had been staying, in the house of Jason. So, trouble, once again, has arisen, coming from the Jews, but indirectly through ruffians and rascals and bad characters that they've rounded up to do the dirty work. I'm sure Paul is referring to this in his first epistle to the Thessalonians when he writes in chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. He says, For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men. In their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, in this way they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Now, Paul wrote in Romans 11 about how the Jews are still God's chosen people, and he still has a plan and a purpose for them. He hasn't totally rejected them. He's temporarily blinded them, temporarily allowed hardness and a spirit of stupor to come upon them. But that doesn't take away from the fact that anyone, Jew or Gentile, who hinders the preaching of the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ, they are bringing wrath upon themselves. Anyone who dares try to mess with God's work, hinder people from coming to salvation, 
or from growing in their Christian faith, look out. As Paul says, they're heaping up their sins to the limit, and the wrath of God has come upon them at last. So, Paul didn't have a whole lot of charitable things to say about the Jews in that region who had opposed him, stirred up trouble, and tried to hinder Gentiles who were eager to hear the gospel from hearing and being saved. As we just read, the mob went to the house of Jason because they obviously knew that's where Paul and Silas were staying. So they went there literally to drag them out, and had they found them there, who knows what they would have done. Uh, I'm sure they would have beaten them and done just as they had done in Philippi, but Paul and Silas were not there. In verses 6 to 9, we read, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So, not finding Paul and Silas at Jason's house, they drag him and some of the other brothers before the city officials. An interesting little piece of trivia that I've included in the notes here, where, it's, where it reads, city officials, uh, brought them before the city officials. That word in Greek is the word polytarchies, which is translated polytarch, or city ruler. It's very interesting. This is just another proof of the veracity of the New Testament scriptures. This Greek word, polytarch, is found nowhere else in any Greek literature, only in this verse of the New Testament. Interesting. It's a very obscure word, found nowhere else, and for a long time, People wondered, you know, if this was just a word that Paul or Luke had made up or where this thing came from. Amazingly, in 1835, in an archaeological dig, they found a piece of an arch in Thessalonica with that very Greek word inscribed on it, polytarch. And that uh, artifact is now preserved in the British Museum in London. Just one of a million evidences and proofs that the New Testament can be trusted. It's the Word of God. It's historically accurate, right down to individual Greek words that were used in the original writing of the New Testament. So, they have dragged Jason and some of the others before these polytarchs, city rulers or city officials, and I like the charge that they bring against Paul and Silas. These men have caused trouble. I like the King James better. They've turned the world upside down. They've turned the world upside down. Wow. What a compliment. That was not a bad charge to be bringing against them. That means mission accomplished. Their preaching, their teaching is having a very profound effect because the world actually is upside down. The preaching of the gospel is intended to bring it right side up. We've got everything backward in our world and in our culture now. We call evil good, we call right wrong. It's all backwards, it's all upside down. And so, 
for them to charge the apostles with turning the world upside down, that was good. That was quite a, quite a nice compliment. Because they were simply following Jesus Christ, the one who declared when he was here on earth, he didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. He came to stir up trouble. Everywhere he went, he divided. He brought a sharp sword that cut right down, even between uh, father and son, husband and wife, family members. He didn't care. He came to bring the sword of God's truth. He didn't come to bring some artificial peace. And the Word of God will always do that. The preaching of the Word of God, the preaching of the Kingdom of God, will appear to the culture as turning the world upside down. When, in actuality, what we're doing is trying to turn the world right side up again and restore it <coughs> excuse me <coughs> restore it to God's way God's principles God's kingdom the kingdom of God is no friend of this world this world system this world culture <coughs> God help us if we're trying to compromise the message of the kingdom of God with this present age and its fallen philosophy, its corrupt worldview. No, these are in direct opposition. When the kingdom of God comes, it smashes every other kingdom. It is in direct opposition to the kingdoms of this world. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not like the kingdoms of, of this world. The kingdom of God is radical. It's revolutionary. It cuts against everything that makes up this fallen world order. And one day soon, it will indeed overthrow all of the kingdoms of this world. Daniel saw a rock coming that was going to smash every other kingdom to pieces, that rock is the kingdom of God. The kingdoms of this world are soon to become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. So, the apostles were doing a good job preaching the gospel of the kingdom because they were perceived as turning the world upside down. Just try preaching basic, simple things in our marketplace today, and you'll find out just how far this culture is from God's way. For instance, just say that marriage is the union between a man and a woman, and they'll stone you to death. All this transgender and, and homosexual confusion and perversion. That's how far upside down the world is. So when we come along and say, no, marriage is between a man and a woman. Sex outside of marriage is sin. It's evil. It will keep you from going to heaven and the kingdom of God. They'll stone you to death. And so... They were not popular with the world system, neither was Jesus, and neither will you and I be if we're doing our job. Just another side note, the accusers seem, I'm emphasizing that word, seem to be very concerned that Paul and Silas were defying Caesar's decrees. What hypocrisy. They didn't care a hoot about Caesar or anybody following Caesar's decrees. This is just pure and simple hypocrisy to try to stir up trouble. But that's what they were doing. These men are defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one 
called Jesus. They were not submitting to Caesar as their king. They were not loyal to Caesar. They were just using this to stir up trouble, saying they're promoting another king, one called Jesus. Well, they did get that part right. They were indeed boldly, fearlessly, without any apology or compromise, preaching Jesus Christ as Lord and as King. Well, because of the trouble, as I mentioned earlier, it's presumed that at that point, Paul and Silas had to make their exit from Thessalonica. Things got too hot there, so they move on to their next assignment in a place called Berea. This brings us to Acts 17, 10 to 15. <clears throat> Acts 17, 10 to 15. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. You know, uh, these guys were gluttons for punishment. It's almost like they knew what they had to do. They knew the pattern. They had to first take the gospel to the Jews. But they knew they were going to encounter trouble. Everywhere they went, their trouble came from the Jews. But here they go again to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. <clears throat> Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens, and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. <clears throat> so, forced to leave Thessalonica by night, Paul and Silas come now to Berea, and they go straight to the synagogue. And again, it's clear from what we just read that Paul did the same thing here that he was doing in the synagogue in Thessalonica, he was using the Old Testament scriptures to prove Christ. But it says, the difference now, the Bereans received the message with great eagerness, and even when Paul was done, they were examining the scriptures for themselves to verify the things that Paul was teaching and preaching. It says that they were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. <clears throat> One aspect to that is what we just mentioned. And I've encouraged this to everyone that I have ever taught or preached to. <clears throat> Go search the scriptures for yourself. Don't just believe something that I or any other preacher or teacher is telling you. Look it up in your Bible. Study the scriptures for yourself. Examine them to make sure that what is being said is true. Unfortunately, that is often not done, and that's how large groups have been led astray by false teachers, false preachers, false prophets, false apostles. The people just sit there and listen to the man or the woman speak and they, they take it at face value. They never check it out with the scriptures. Always remember the Bereans. They were of more noble character. They searched the scriptures. They examined the scriptures for themselves to see if what Paul said 
was true. So, as they searched, what they found was everything Paul was saying to them was true and accurate. And they realized, wow, the Old Testament scriptures all prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And we're told in verse 12, here in Berea, many Jews believed, along with many Greeks, but many Jews did indeed believe there. Why? They took the time, they had open hearts, to look at the scriptures. Let the scriptures speak for themselves. The evidence is overwhelming when you look at the Old Old Testament types, shadows, and prophecies, all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But, news filtered back to Thessalonica that Paul was preaching in Berea and many Jews were getting saved. So guess what? The troublemakers come from Thessalonica to Berea And again, in verse 13, they're stirring up trouble. Stirring up more trouble. The Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, so they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. Same strategy. They didn't cause the trouble themselves. They stirred up the crowds to do their dirty work. Once again... Paul has to be evacuated, being escorted by some of the brothers out of Berea. He parts company temporarily from Silas and Timothy and leaves instructions (coughs) for them to join him once again when it is possible. So, Time and again, we've noticed that most of the rage and persecution is directed principally against Paul. Not so much against Barnabas when he was with him, or now Silas or Timothy. There's no mention of them, you know, suffering any trouble here. Of course, both Paul and Silas were locked up in the Philippian jail, but in most of the other cases, their ire, their wrath, their hatred is directed at this one man, Paul. And so, he has to leave Berea, and he ends up next in Athens, Greece. He's now alone. Neither Timothy nor Silas are with him, and I've given a note here, um, at the bottom of page 199, if you're trying to follow. Uh, Timothy had probably stayed at Philippi and only later rejoined Paul and Silas in Berea. And the three were obviously working very closely, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, in these regions, as evidenced by Paul's opening salutation in both of his epistles to the Thessalonians. Both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians begin with these words, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians. Interesting. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So these three were working very closely, but now Paul is separated from the group and finds himself alone in Athens. I doubt that we're going to be able to complete this next section, but I want to at least uh, try to forge a little ways into it, and then we'll complete it next time. This, I think, is a very important segment of Paul's missionary journey for a number of reasons. He's in Athens. He's speaking to a basically a pagan Gentile culture, very much like the culture we live in now. And that's why I think it's important for us to study this segment carefully, because I think we can learn a lot on how to 
present the gospel, how to minister to this culture we find ourselves in now. More about that when we come to that. Let's read Acts 17 from 16 to 21. It says, while Paul was waiting for them, them referring to Timothy and Silas, remember his instruction was for them to join him in Athens. They've not done that yet. So he's waiting for them in Athens. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Sounds like our world, doesn't it? That's why I said a lot of similarities between Athens and the culture we find ourselves in. Full of idols, full of idolatry. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. There was a Jewish synagogue there and some God-fearing Greeks. That means Greeks who had converted to Judaism who would have also been there in the synagogue. He starts off, as always, in the synagogue with the Jews, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. We would call it open-air evangelism. He's not just going to the synagogue, he's out in the street, preaching day by day to those that happened to be there. Now, Greece, of course, is known for all of its philosophers, Greek mythology, Greek philosophy. Uh, They were very much into wisdom, philosophy, and idolatry. And you can certainly see that in these verses. Verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So, they prided themselves on their philosophy their wisdom, their deep thought, and the many, many false or foreign gods that they worshipped. They were quite ready and willing to hear about any new gods that Paul was talking about, even though some of them mocked him and called him a babbler. They nevertheless wanted to hear more. We'd like to learn about these gods that you're promoting that you're talking about. But remember, the city was full of idols. Paul was greatly moved when he saw how darkened the hearts and minds of the people in Athens were. What gross darkness they were living in as he looked around and saw all of the idols and how lost the people in this culture were. (coughs) And many centuries, about five centuries before the time that this visit is occurring, Athens was the center of Greece and possibly of the world when it came to philosophy, literature, and art. It was the at the height of its glory about five centuries before this time. And even though some of that glory had faded, nevertheless, Athens was still an important center of culture, education, intellectualism, 
and philosophy. And so, um, whatever Paul was preaching, they had no clue what he was talking about, but they were always ready to hear some new idea or some new philosophy. Paul obviously uh, didn't care at all about the philosophy or the statues of the art in Athens. He was burdened by the spiritual darkness that the souls there were in. It says the city was full of idols. King James translates it, the city was wholly given to idolatry, which is really a better translation. Wholly, completely given over to idolatry, almost indicating that there was like a demonic possession. In another place, Paul would teach that when you worship idols, you're worshiping demons. And any kind of idol worship invites demonic uh, enslavement, certainly demonic influence and involvement. But this is a strong word. The city was wholly given to idolatry. It's like it was under a, a principality of idolatry. And the scriptures are very clear. Whenever man turns away from God, no amount of philosophy, education, intellect, artistic or musical talent can prevent him from sinking in the darkness and the folly of idolatry. Let's read from Romans 1 verses 18 to 25, where Paul so eloquently outlines the, the downward spiral of any human being. As they turn away from God, they sink deeper and deeper into darkness, blindness, and idolatry. Romans 1, 18 to 25. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Pause there. I've often spoken on this. Um, I don't believe there is such a thing as an atheist. The people described here, they knew the truth. They saw the truth, but they suppressed it. They didn't want to know the truth. They suppressed the truth by their own wickedness. Verse 19, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. How? Where? Being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. God has left His fingerprints all over creation. <clears throat> Whether you look at a plant, an animal, a sunset, a tree, an ocean wave, uh, a starlit sky, everywhere you look, you see the evidence of God's eternal power and divine nature. You cannot say there is no God. All you can do is suppress that truth that is staring you in the face. It's all around you. That's why Paul boldly says, they are without excuse. And I would confirm that by saying, anybody with a rational mind who looks around them at the created world has to come to one conclusion. There is a creator God. It didn't come about through evolution and random chaotic uh, events. There is design, there is wisdom, there is revelation of God everywhere we look 
in the universe that he made, so that men are without excuse. But look what happens. Verse 21. For although they knew God, that confirms what I just said, they knew God. They saw God. They, They knew the truth about God. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, that's certainly the hallmark of the Greeks, they claimed to be the the wise men and philosophers of the world. Claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Let me stop for a second here. It's interesting when you look at some of the famous Greek philosophers like Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. You know, these men are revered almost as gods to this day on university campuses. But when you look more carefully... A lot of the things that they taught and believed had been proven to be dead wrong. Aristotle, particularly, he had terrible science. A lot of the so-called science that he claimed to know and understand and teach, it was never even tested. And so for more than 2,000 years, many of the things that he promoted were believed to be true, were finally proven to be totally false when they were tested. So, claiming to be wise, they were actually in darkness, and they became fools. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 23, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. There's the idolatry. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God. Notice that. They had the truth of God, but they traded it in for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. I think we're going to have to stop there and pick it right up in the next portion where it talks about Paul reasoning first in their synagogue and then with the philosophers out in the marketplace of Athens. Okay, mark your place there and we'll pick it up right here next time. Let's close in prayer for tonight. Father, I thank you for the word of God. It's living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's timeless. What worked in Paul's day works in our day. What was true in Jesus' day or Paul's day is true in our day. And I thank you, Lord, that we have the scriptures, we have the truth of your word to guide us, to direct us, to help us to form our worldview, our morals, our understanding of the world around us. God, we live in a culture very much like that of Athens, totally given over to idolatry, totally given over to darkness and the philosophies of men because they've turned away from the truth of God. They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and professing to be wise, they've become darkened in their folly and in their idolatry, worshiping created things rather than the Creator. Help us, O God, in these last days, to see this culture turn around, to see this upside-down world turned right-side up through the preaching of your word, through the preaching of the gospel, through the teaching of sound doctrine. God, we thank you for the historical account, 
that Luke has left us in the book of Acts. So many marvelous things we can learn from these stories and testimonies. Let them encourage our hearts. Let them teach us the right way, even in our day and our culture, as to how we are to walk, how we are to speak, how we are to minister to those around us. Father, I give you praise and honor and glory for all those that have joined with us tonight. I pray, O God, that this seed, the seed of your word, would now be planted in each and every heart, and it would find good soil. And Lord, that word would take root and produce fruit, 30, 60, and a hundredfold. God, I pray your blessing upon each one. Bless and keep us. Make your face shine upon us. Be gracious to us. Lift up your countenance and shine into each and every one of our hearts and give us your peace, your shalom. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, King of all kings, Lord of all lords, coming soon in glory.